I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Dante Di Stefano, coming to us from, I'd say, South Central New York in the Binghamton area. And his work has appeared in Prairie Schooner, American Life and Poetry, and the Best American Poetry of 2018. He teaches high school at Endicott, New York, which is out there where he lives in Central New York. And his latest book is Ill Angels from Etruscan Press, 2019. So, hey, Dante, I'm glad to have you here. You're a friend of Nicole's and a friend of Maria Gillen's. That's very cool. <laughs> Thanks, Charlie. It's an honor to be here. I, I appreciate being on the program. Uh, let me ask you, so I, I went looking around a little bit online, and I found that I think maybe it was the promo guy at New York Quarterly who said this. Says that your poems ruminate on love, death, music, language, and notions of national belonging. So I like to ask poets, what do you think about that? Is that pretty good? How would you characterize it? That's pretty comprehensive, and I think that's you know, <laughs> what pretty much any poet is writing about, right? Those, those types of things that pretty much, especially yeah. American poets, are always writing about America in some way, and and those other, you know, those other big categories, like we go to poetry to kind of negotiate the most uh, mysterious aspects of being alive, right? So, so some of those aspects are love and death and why we're here. Yeah. Why, why don't we start off with the, uh, with, with the poem for your daughter? Great. Yeah. All right. That's so, very, that's very, uh, yeah. Thank you. My daughter's about two years old now, and I wrote this when she was one month old, and it's a cradle song. One squall from your tiny body, fevered in the night, outweighs an electorate, undoes the disgust that knots up my throat with talk of power and its founding fathers. You're not the first to come into a world where bad men bleed the meek, lie about it, and smile. Burrow deeper into my shirt, arching bluebell of my most hopeful hour. For far too few years, I know you'll be safe in our home, but after that, your nation will try to teach you its collateral vocabularies of shackle and pledge. Don't learn them. Your birthright is no baton. Don't wield it. Beacon it, this broken hymn, this lullaby your father sings for you made of spindrift love and rage and larkspur. Yeah, I was thinking of that recently. Uh, fortunately, our son got home from New York before everything shut down. And uh, of course, he's all grown up now. But for some reason this morning, I was thinking about, oh, it's funny how at some point, you don't have to hold your kid's hand across the street. Yeah. You know, and then you think about uh, for X amount of time, you know, she'll be home and safe. Yeah. And then yeah. you don't have control. The, I'm sure you had the experience of feeling like, I'm sure all parents feel like you want to keep them little forever in a way, but you also want them to have all the things, the good things that come in life. But it's yeah. so nice to have a little girl at two years old, you know, so in love with my wife and I and, uh, you know, 
And so discovering everything, uh, you know, anew for the first time, it's been an amazing experience. Yeah, it's definitely a yin-yang thing. I really remember when it was still too little to go on the backpack because you can't hold your head up. And and we were living in Albany and we had lots of nice woods and nature centers around. I'm saying, get big enough for the backpack, for God's sake, so we can go out (laughs) in the woods. (laughs) So, yeah. So it was that, that kind of a thing, you know? And yeah. then when it got bigger, we could play music together. So that was good, too. Yeah. So you got some great yeah. stuff coming up. <laughs> yeah, that's. I look forward to all of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is your only daughter? Yeah, this yeah, is our so first one. Great. Yeah, yeah. It's so exciting. Yeah. And I, mean, I was reading that, and I was really thinking about now. Because mm. you know, especially the lies are more in your face right now. Right, yeah. They're always there, but like right now they're yeah, really in yeah. your face, the crazy yeah, stuff yeah. in those press briefings and that sort of thing. So yeah. yeah. But that was two yeah. years ago and now we got this. I know, it's incredible. I mean, I've always written about kind of like politic political things and um it takes on new valences having a child, obviously. So Yeah. Yeah. Are you are you uh you teach high school, are you doing it remotely now? Are you yes. guys online and all that? Yes, yeah, which is, it's been difficult. There are so many disparities in, in this, you know, in access and student lives. And um, so there's, it's, it's, um, we're doing the best we can, but it's, it's, sure. uh, it's difficult. Oh, well, yeah. Our library just opened for, uh, like the restaurants with pickup. You order the books and they make you a little package to come pick up. Yeah, that's, that's how far great. our, that's how that's far our library's got. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that starts next week. Yeah, that'll be good. It's progress. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the hardest things, the library, for yeah. me, the hardest thing's the library. Yeah, yeah. And I can't yeah. go up to Bennington College and just browse around and find good books, you know. It's just, <laughs> ooh, it's tough. Yeah. yeah. Poor me. Yeah. Okay, well, let's hear another poem. <laughs> Since we were talking about high school, maybe I should read the teaching poem that I have. That's a cool one. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So this is called Prompts for High School Teachers Who Write Poetry. Write about walking into the building as a new teacher. Write yourself hopeful. Write years pass. Write it again. Write years pass. Write a row of empty desks. Write the face of a student you've almost forgotten. He's worn a Derek Jeter jersey all year. Do not conjecture about the adults he goes home to or the place he calls home. Write about how he came to you for help each October morning, his sophomore year. Write about teaching Othello to him. Write wherein of entrees vast and deserts idle, rough quarries of rocks and hills whose heads touch heaven. Write about reading his obituary five years after he graduated. Write a poem containing the words common, poor, differentiate and overdose. Write the names of the ones you will never forget. Jenna, Tiberius, Heaven, Megan, Anya, Kingsley, Ashley, David. Write Mari with nobody's baby tattooed in cursive on her neck, spitting 16 bars in the back row as little white Mike beatbox candy shop and the whole class exploded. Write about Zuli and Nelly, sisters from Guatemala, upon whom a thousand strange new English words rain down on like hell each period. 
and who wrote the story of their long journey on La Bestia through Mexico for you in handwriting made heavy by the Aquis and Ayers ached in their knuckles, hidden by their smiles. Write an ode to loose leaf, write elegies on the nub nose of a pink eraser, carve your devotion from a number two pencil, write the uncounted hours you spent fretting about the ones who cursed you out for keeping order, who slammed classroom doors, who screamed, you are not my father, whose pain unraveled and broke you, whose pain you knew. Write how all this added up to a life. Well, teachers are going to love that. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, we, we, there's a, a pedagogy website that we post to when something's relevant for pedagogy because they don't want just poetry. And that's really, really hot. What you're in the middle of that, something reminded me, what grades, uh, grade or grades do you do? I teach 10th grade uh, co-taught, which is special ed with a, a special ed teacher in the room and uh, uh, 12th grade creative writing. So. Mm. I don't know why I had a flash trying to picture the kid who yells, you're not my father. <laughs> <laughs> that was the only, wait, is That's that, happened is that a, several times. There's such a, such a difference between, yeah. <laughs> such a difference between ninth or tenth grade and, and yeah. twelfth grade. So yeah. just had that flash of a thought. Yeah. yeah. The, the tenth the tenth graders are are much more difficult than the twelfth graders. Mm. So more there's a lot of uh, a lot of um, they're they're in the middle of it. You know they're in the middle of high school and they don't see an end. So there's a yeah. lot of things that go along with that that can be challenging, but. There's yeah. also that go along with that. They could be great too. So yeah, they, well, off the wall creativity can come out. Yeah, yeah. You know, whereas <laughs> yeah. the seniors, I think, would be are a little more settled down. Yeah. I can't really remember if I was settled down or not. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> were you? Uh yeah. I mean, I was. Uh, I grew up in this town, Binghamton, oh. which is in upstate New York, and it's like a kind of post-industrial town. It was kind of on hard times when I was growing up, like a li little bit of a Rust Belt city. And uh, yeah, I think I was very quiet and studious and I loved, I mean, I was, I really somehow got into Dostoevsky when I was in uh, 11th grade and basically spent my whole senior year reading all of Dostoevsky. So <laughs> I don't know, great. Typical, uh, <laughs> typical kid in that way, but uh, you know, I also did, you know, I played sports and things like that yeah. so um but I mean I I read a lot I mean my life a lot of my life at that time did revolve around reading and just being so captured by those Russian novels you know it's like this whole world I could understand kind of tonally because of the you know heightened emotion in it you know mm -hmm. which it really reflects teenage life and you know how Dostoevsky, you know, really his characters are all sorting through these fundamental questions, of, you know, about the nature of the universe, about God and love again, you know, and that really resonated me with me at that time. Yeah. That's a great statement. Dostoevsky reflects high you know, school they life. Have these, teenage life. Yeah. I think in some ways like there, if you, you don't need to have read a Dostoevsky novel to understand Dostoevsky novel you just have to have been an adolescent 
you know, like in some ways that's, that's very true. I mean, they're some of the most sophisticated novels ever written too, but there's some emotional, um, yeah. or reminds me of that period of, of heightened experience. Yeah. Um, I took a while to get there in literature. I, at the high school, I was pretty much reading high, science fiction. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great too. I think too. just about universally I was reading science, that's about it, science fiction. Yeah. What, what were you reading? What were all you those, All those guys, Heinlein, Asimov. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I really like the guys in fantasy and science fiction. Uh, Richard Matheson, I thought, was just out of sight. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Frederick Brown, yeah. who does a couple of genres, he also did those killer little short stories that would have mm. the big surprise last two lines or something like that. And I, it yeah. really grabbed me as a high school kid. I thought it was, yeah. oh, so clever, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just recently read the uh, the uh, Foundation trilogy for the first time, and I was really knocked out by it. And I wish that I had read that when I was younger, um, but I, I'm glad I read it at the age I did. Yeah, really a yeah. great great series of novels. Yeah, he was amazing. All the books he wrote. Yeah. Well, let's do another poem. I didn't send it to you, but I can read a poem about reading Dostoevsky. Um, oh great. This is the first this is the first poem in my book Ill Angels that you mentioned and it's called Reading Dostoevsky at 17. In those days my dreams always changed titles before they were finished and I wanted only to love in that insane tortured way of poor dear Dmitri Karamazov. Suddenly I was speaking the language of lapdog and Samovar. This is the ballroom, the barracks, the firing squad. This is the old monk with the beard of bees. This is the orange lullaby the moon of the moon will sing you when it's grieving. This is the province you escape by train, fleeing heavy snow and eternal elk. This is the part where I take in my hand and I tell you, we are burning. Yeah, and, and you're right. And anybody can relate to Dostoevsky if they want to just take the time to look at it later. When I read it a little older, one of the things I noticed is kind of odd, but a lot of people had trembling lips. Did you ever <laughs> notice that when you were reading it? it was well, just, a... I thought an odd little thing of his to have their lips trembling. It'll be there explicitly in the book. Oh, no, another trembling lip. Oh, my God, this must be tense. Well, there's a lot of melodrama. When you, I was reading uh, The Brothers Karamazov recently, rereading it, and, you know, sometimes I, you know, I couldn't believe how melodramatic it was. <laughs> but it's still great, you know. Oh, yeah. You have a different, different relation to it. I took it completely, you know, seriously and never questioned it. Yeah. was completely in it when I was a teenager. And now, you know, I take it in a different way, you know. See, oh. see those, like, the trembling lips that are little, <laughs> that make you chuckle a little bit. <laughs> well, I guess it's a bit like Shakespeare throwing in the slapstick stuff. Yeah. While yeah. he's talking about the most profound things yeah. of life, you know. Yeah. 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 And I think a lot of those great writers like Dostoevsky or Kafka and even poets, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of humor in poetry that goes uh, 
unnoticed by really serious poets, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, my friend, Santa Lucia, who you interviewed, she's a great um, kind of comic poet where you, you see the humor in her work. It's very obvious, you know, yeah. she's a naturally funny person. <clears throat> a lot of people who are more serious, I think there's more humor in poetry than we, I oftentimes give poetry credit for, you know? Yes, we are seen as being very serious. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's there, you're right, absolutely. Yeah. Well, read another poem, this is good. I'll read, uh, I'll read a serious poem. <laughs> it's very serious, but uh, it's called Burning Churches, I sent you it. And uh, oh, yeah. about the Notre Dame church fire, but also about the history of um, uh, ter uh, terrorism and church burnings that, uh, and it starts with two quotes. One is, a man accused of setting fire to three predominantly black churches in a southern Louisiana parish was charged with hate crimes on Monday, adding to the th three charges of arson that were filed last week. And that's from the New York Times, April 16, 2019. And then the other uh, quote is from Emmanuel Macron, the fire of Notre Dame reminds us that our stories never end and that we will always have challenges to overcome. What we believe to be indestructible can also be touched. Burning churches. Our Lady of Paris, our story never ends. It is burning our story and the structure threatens imminent collapse. The very crown of thorns is burning along with the relics of decapitated saints. Our story is burning. The sons of deputy sheriffs douse belfries and vestibules with kerosene. They tear down the old rugged cross. They would light a noose and let it smolder if they could. They would immolate, hooded, still. They would strange fruit and postcards of corpses hanging from telephone poles. Circa, whenever, during All Lives Matter, during National Poetry Month, during Lent, our story is rising like sparks, like cinders, like a mouthful of ash at the tomb's mouth. Our story is a stone rolled away, a cave, a caved-in roof, a skull. The cerements of the dead burst into a lotus flower ablaze. Bless, curse, the accident, the arsonist, not the fire licking the tabernacle door like a good dog. Look at the flames dancing in the nave on the west rose window, on transept, pillar, monstrance, reliquary. They are saying mass, these incendiary tongues. They are saying the old story. We will endure this. No, we will die. But even this end, is a kind of rising. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about how that poem got created? Because I think you, you've accomplished something that's not easy to do. Um, when you try to write about issues, it, it's just not easy because you can't just directly say, you know, burning church is bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like protest poetry might yeah often do if it's not done very well and but did you start with Notre Dame or did you and happen and then your mind happened to go over there or what happened how did it happen 
Well, I mean, I did start with the Notre Dame fire and, and that led me, there was an, a news article in the New York Times about um, these black churches that had been burned hmm. um, around the same time and how the, the Notre Dame fire, um, you know, people responded to that, but then they also um, kind of donated money to these black churches. Um, so that kind of piqued my interest. And then I tried to follow that story, but it was, although it was nationally covered, it was kind of a blip on, on the, on the, uh, you know, yeah. the radar compared to the cathedral fire. And, you know, I, I, you know, you have, there are these stories from time to time we're, we're in a much more heightened state of awareness about, you know, white supremacy and things like that. Not today than ever before, but every once in a while, there are these new stories like, I mean, the Ahmaud Arbery thing that's happening right now. But then even if you go back to the 90s and the James Byrd uh, Jr. lynching and things like that, the Amadou Diallo, things, things like that, that, you know, were in the news when I was younger. Um, those stories, they, they just stick with you and they remind you of this fraught history and, and the, the, the narratives that are silenced in our, our national histories. And, you know, I, I just kept thinking about the church fires as, as kind of a way into thinking about that complicated history. And I have been reading this, uh, this book called Bring the War Home by Catherine Ballou, and she's a historian, and it's a it's a um, a history of um, kind of paramilitary white supremacist groups um, it, 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 after the Vietnam War, from the Vietnam War to the um, Oklahoma City bombing. Um, and so I was really thinking about these issues of domestic terrorism, and you know, I was thinking about the church fires in light of of that people's response to the Black Lives. Matter movement, white people's response to the Black Lives Matter movement, things that are problematic in that respect. Um, so I was trying to, and and then I just thought about these things for for a very long time, and then I just wrote the, the poem. So you know, you kind of think the way things work for me with poetry is I'll think about something for a long time, and a long time may range from a whole day to several weeks to several months, and then you know then in some moment you just, you know, kind of surrender your intentionality on that thing and you begin to write and then it's hard to explain what happens in that moment. Right. And so uh, that's the most fun of writing poetry yeah. when it flows. So you just yeah. let it all flow out and then see what you yeah. got. See, see what you have. And then, and then just yeah. think about it, you know, and go back and do the, see if you need to do the hard work for revision. So, well, wow. That's how, how it works. So, and this oh, example of it, I, I get a lot of things to write about from the news, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it is hard, as you mentioned, to write a po- poem of witness. Um, it's very complicated, and there are many, many missteps that you can take. And, you, you know, for me, there are there is a place for poems that are screeds or, you know, rants or things yeah. like that. I think there definitely is. Um, but that's not kind of the kind of poem of witness I'm necessarily interested in writing. So, um, so I w- always want to shade it with nuance and I always want to um, kind of, uh, you know, 
negotiate the complexity of an issue that is oftentimes beyond my understanding in a way, you know, mm. like big issues like, you know, s- systemic racism. I mean, it's hard to wrap your head around um, how this, this history, you know, so this is my way of engaging it. Yeah. And it, I think one of the interesting things, this is a poem that has intralineal spacing. So spacing within the individual lines, which is something that's old in poetry. If you go back to the Anglo-Saxon poetry that has the kind of lacunas in the text and things like that. And you saw it in a lot of modernist poets and you saw it, you've seen it for years, but contemporary, very recent millennial poets, uh, you see this all the time. If you read poetry or magazine yeah. you're going to see a poem that has a lot of intralineal spacing so this is the first time I did that and I wanted to think about why are poets doing this what how does it work out in the line if I'm going to read it how do I read it um what is the purpose of it and am I doing it just because it kind of looks cool on the page you know you see this over the ages you know over the years in poetry there are certain kinds of um uh you know uh, you know, like, uh, what would you call it? Like fads, fads, yeah. things that people, people do on the page, yeah. um, uh, mannerisms of the era, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just a mannerism or is it doing something right? That, and that's, that's what I'm, I think in this poem, it's kind of, you know, reenacting this his, history of gaps and silences and things like that. So I could, I think it, it's natural for this poem. But then I've tried it with other poems and I felt like it was affected in a way that mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, not, yeah. not working for the poem. Yeah. So, but I think it's a really interesting technique. So I, I wanted to explore it a little bit more. In this yeah. Poem. Well, obviously with your work, um, with the Ashbury things that we started talking with and uh, with this kind of thing, you're always, and it's what I like to do, always looking for new ways. You, you want to write a better poem. That's all it amounts to. And so yeah. what, what can you learn that'll help you get a better poem? Um, and, and that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, one of the biggest things about one of the main reasons I write poetry, I mean, for me, writing a poem is a critical engagement. It's a way for me to understand poetry better, which is what I'm really after anyway. I mean, I'm, I'm just so in love with poetry and reading poetry that, um, you know, the writing, even though I want, obviously, want to have poems published and I've always wanted to have books and things like that. That's great, but that's not really what I'm in it for. It's just, you know, how is this writing of this thing, which I don't really even know why I'm doing it in the first place, but how does this lead me into a deeper understanding of what a poem is and how a poem works and how the poems that I love have worked and have moved me. So, Oh, great. Well, thanks so much. This has been wonderful. And you talk about just the kind of things I think it's great for poets to talk about and people to hear, like how the mind of a poet works or what's floating around in there to the extent we can ever, ever really find out. So really, thanks a lot. This has been great. I've enjoyed it so much, Charlie, and thanks for doing this podcast. It's a wonderful, wonderful asset, and I intend to follow it. Great. Okay, folks, I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. We've been visiting today with Dante DiStefano from out there in central New York. Be with us again next time, and let poetry speak to you.
You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Munley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.